welcome to Handpan Podcast, a space to listen to music and stories of transformation. I am your host, Florencia Duron, and I want to really quickly say thank you to the Transformation Project for helping to fund this podcast. Thank you, Transformation Project. My guest today is Jennifer Lindy. Jen is a principal lecturer in the Hugh Downs School of Human Communication at Arizona State University. She is also the co-founder of the StoryScope Project, where she engages communities in story circles to share life experiences and practice deep listening. Jen is the type of listener who makes you feel like disclosing everything that has ever happened to you. She makes you feel safe, and I'm so excited for her story today. Her story is about sibling love and the beauty of loving someone not out of obligation, but because they are who they are. Enjoy. I knew that if I held on to Stephen's hand, I was safe. It was more than a big brother, little sister thing. Stephen had, and still has, a way about him that makes everything feel like it will be okay. He is deeply kind, calm under pressure, and very, very smart. My six-year-old self knew that he was the best person to wake up to help me. They were all there. My parents, my three brothers and two sisters sleeping away in our huge canvas army tent that barely fit into the campsite. We each had a military grade down mummy sleeping bag to keep the cold Utah night air at bay. And I don't really remember why I had slipped out of mine to head up the path to the other camp. It was always like that as the youngest of six children. I was off doing something and maybe just maybe somebody was watching me. When we camped, and we camped a lot because we didn't have a lot of money, we always had two campsites, one for cooking and eating and the other for the tent. So I had crawled out and headed up the wooded path to the other campsite, and there I found it, completely destroyed. Our coolers were upended and ripped apart. Food from the camp box was strewn about everywhere, and the clothesline that held our swimming suits, camp towels, and rinsed blue jeans was down and had obviously been sniffed by a giant bear. I ran as fast as I could back to the tent and crawled in to wake up Stephen. A bear, Stevie! A bear! I need you to come help me, I whispered in his ear. Fifty-two years later, I still whisper to my brother that I need him. And sometimes I shout it. He never disappoints. And now, sometimes, he whispers that he needs me too.
My siblings and I have always been unusually close. Perhaps it was because we slept together like sardines in that tent so many times. Or maybe it was the great symmetry of our pack. Three girls and three boys, three bigs and three littles. The name our parents gave the groupings of the older kids and the younger kids. Three years separated the bigs and the littles and 11 years total between my oldest sister, Glenn, and me. Our closeness is best understood by knowing more about my mother. Mother taught us that family was something we needed to cherish and nurture. It wasn't a boring lesson or a mantra. It came more in the form of fun and exciting ways for us to be with each other and truly come to trust one another. Uh, the Christmas ritual of lining up by age before we were allowed to go into the living room to open up our stockings is a pretty good example. The excruciating anticipation of the unknown gifts was harnessed by the knowledge that we had to wait for one another. There we were, chomping at the bit to kiss at our presents, together, wiggly toddlers placed in front of sleepy teenagers who complained loudly that Santa should stop waking them up so early. Or the way mom would carefully fill our little orange juice glasses as we sat around the large white formica table for our weekend breakfasts. Orange juice was a luxury and we knew mom made the fill line exactly the same for each one of us. You know, there was a fairness and a sense of equality that was ingrained in us in such a simple little action. Through marriages and divorces, the birth of children and grandchildren, the deaths of our parents, and much, much more, the bigs and the littles have remained a constant presence in one another's lives. When I was eight years old, my parents called it quits. At the urging of my grandmother, after I was born, my mother returned to school to finish college. As an adult, I learned that it was likely because my mother had a nervous breakdown after having yet another baby. After begging a doctor to tie her tubes at birth four and being told a strong no, she went on to have two more. After my mother died, my aunt told me how my mom had called my grandmother when I was just a couple months old and told her that she was on a bus. And Nani, my grandmother, needed to go to the house and take care of the children. My mother was leaving, escaping. My aunt said, I think Nani knew that the only way for Barbie to live was to return to college. My mother loved being a college student. She finished her undergraduate and master's degree and started a PhD all while I was under the age of seven. And when she was offered a teaching position at a small college in Wisconsin, she said yes. And she said goodbye to our father. And away the seven of us went to a new life in rural Wisconsin. My dad stayed behind in Salt Lake City His path is a different story.
We were known as the hippie family in our new town of a thousand people, and I suppose that was accurate to a degree. My brothers had hair that flowed past their shoulders, and my brother Guy wore his signature headband that is still talked about by our high school friends. My sister Glenn was her beautiful self, with patched blue jeans and bare feet, and she got busy wowing all the local boys and smoking cigarettes on the courthouse lawn. Meanwhile, Mom was climbing over the fence at the local water sewage plant to rescue dogs who were chained up inside. It was the local dog pound, and Mom was determined to expose the animal cruelty and shut it down. She irritated the school superintendent by telling him that my sister Erin and I would wear whatever we wanted when the dress code demanded we wear skirts or dresses to our knees. Our mother went from the perfectly coiffed and stylish 1950s beauty to paisley prints, hair in pigtails, and a new boyfriend who was tall, handsome, and groovy. It was the 1970s. Just two years into the 1970s, my mother left her job as a college professor and became an artist. She and her now permanent boyfriend, Didi, started making jewelry and selling it at local flea markets. Eventually, we started spending summers on a small island in Lake Michigan. Washington Island was yet another adventure for me and my siblings. We opened a tiny grocery store and bait shop at the northernmost harbor on the island, and all of us worked there. Large yachts from Michigan and Illinois would motor into our harbor and dock their boats. We met some interesting people who bought supplies from us, rented our rowboats for sightseeing around the harbor, and invited us on board for dinners and sunset parties. We initially lived in small cabins on top of a cliff that faced a state park island named Rock Island. Our cabins were an abandoned Girl Scout camp owned by a friend, very primitive. We eventually bought land near this camp and Dee Dee and my brothers built our own place. We had a summer kitchen with a fireplace for cooking, a main cabin with two bedrooms and separate bedroom cabin by itself. No electricity, no running water, no people other than some distant neighbors. My brother Guy and I explored every inch of that forest together. Guy's a year older than me and was my constant playmate. One time we were crossing the harbor in our rowboats and a big storm came up. We were rowing as hard as we could, but the dangerous water of Lake Michigan was pulling us out of the harbor into the open water. The rain and the wind was hitting my face and the water poured into my wooden rowboat. I could barely see Guy anymore, but I could hear him. Row, Jenny, row, row, Jenny, row. My 10-year-old arms were working as hard as possible, but I was losing the battle. Guy was stronger and he was making better headway toward the shore, but he didn't leave me. He stayed with me and eventually we were rescued by the Coast Guard. 
I often think about how Guy never abandons me. Many years later, when our mother was dying in hospice, Guy was right next to me, lifting her body as I gave her morphine and adjusted her pillows. It is never easy to watch a parent die. All of us were there with mom in her final week, and it was a very difficult goodbye for us. The first Thanksgiving after mom died, Guy left his own family to spend the holiday with me. I was living in mom's house at the time and I was missing her terribly. Guy just knew. <laughs> he knew he needed to come. He knew I needed some help. When I was in sixth grade, my mother began taking the littles out of school for three months and we traveled from Wisconsin to the Southwest. This was when I fell in love with the desert. We had a camper and pulled a small trailer and mostly stayed in Tucson, Arizona and areas between Tucson and the border. We occasionally went into Mexico and camped on a beautiful beach in San Carlos near Guaymos, Sonora. The amazing sand dunes and the deep blue sea of Cortez was the perfect place for Aaron, Guy, and me to run, swim, ride horses, play. Years later, when I went back to San Carlos during spring break from college, I looked out at the dunes where Aaron and I had buried Guy up to his neck and then walked away and had a good laugh. My sister Aaron is three years older and I always wanted to be more like her. She was blonde and green-eyed like my sister Glenn, and I had brown hair and brown eyes like my brothers and parents. I remember many lazy afternoons in the Arizona or Mexico sunshine where Aaron was sitting outside in the beach chair reading a book and listening to music on our eight-track tape player. The never-ending Neil Diamond and Don McLean songs were embedded in my psyche forever. My sister Erin is my only sibling who never left Wisconsin after we moved there in the 1970s. Yet for me, she is forever connected to the desert southwest. You may be wondering what happened to our father. Dad died shortly after Mom. He spent years fighting alcoholism, serious mental illness, and I believe a deep loneliness that he felt after we left. I saw my father during summers when we would travel to Salt Lake City to visit our grandparents, but it was never consistent and always a bit awkward. When I was in my 30s, my brother Stephen called and asked me to come to Arizona, from Arizona to Utah immediately. I need you, he whispered through the phone. Dad had retired from his job as a chef at the Utah State Prison and was living in a small apartment in a town south of Salt Lake. And he had experienced a complete psychotic break. Stephen and his wife, Darlene, had moved to Salt Lake in the late 1970s to care for both sets of grandparents. And Dad had also become their responsibility but none of us could have anticipated what we found when we went to his apartment. I'm still amazed that my father was alive. The pathology of his illness included 
garbage piled six feet high in every room. A burned bed, all appliances and fixtures broken, cobwebs, cigarette butts, a bathtub of empty booze bottles and piles of coin and cash strewn throughout. My brother Guy flew out from Chicago and he and Stephen and I spent a week cleaning out the apartment and demolishing the broken, damaged interior. At the end of the day, we would pile bags of garbage into Steve's truck, remove our hazmat suits, and drive silently home to Steve and Dar's house, where Dad would be sitting on the back porch, happy to see us. Dad was very funny, and he could tell a good story, and we would sit with him, listening and laughing. On our last trip away from Dad's apartment, I was sitting in my regular spot between Stephen and Guy in the cab of the truck, and I was holding a box of coins. Dad had a pretty amazing coin collection when we were kids, and this was what remained. I dug through them until I found three silver dollars from the same year, and I gave one to each of my brothers, and I kept one for myself. This is so we never forget what we did for our father, I said. I carried that coin in my pocket every day for close to 15 years. But this is actually a story about what happened to me and my siblings in 2019, the year that my world tilted, the year that my reality shifted, the year that nearly broke my heart. My partner Tammy and I had planned to spend six weeks at Glenn's house in Wisconsin that summer, and I was very excited to go home to my small town. In late May, we packed up the Jeep with our elderly collie Tabor, our young cat Teddy, and enough snacks to make it to our first Airbnb. It was a road trip to Wisconsin. Our stops was a place outside of a small town in Idaho called St. Anthony. It had open spaces for Tabor to walk and a stunning view of the backside of the Grand Tetons. I had randomly rented this place because they allowed us to have animals. The small basement apartment had a broken stove and a cramped bedroom. The kitchen there was almost also the bathroom, and there was the pig barn with hogs squealing and rooting around, and a family who lived upstairs, dad mowing the lawn, kids swinging from a handmade tire on a tree, mom with a glass of wine in the hot tub. Time freezes for me right now in 2021 as I think back to that house. I had no idea it would become a place fixed in my mind forever. 
a spot on the map that I would stare at again and again. A place that haunts me. A couple days later, Tammy and I arrived in my beautiful hometown of Green Lake, Wisconsin. We were happy to finally be there with my sister Glenn and her home on the Puckyan River. It was time for a party. Glenn and I were busy choosing a menu for the big family gathering of our siblings, their children, and grandchildren. It had been a while since we had all gotten together and we were all excited to see each other. The only one missing was Stephen, who still lived in Salt Lake, and we did our best of trying to get him to come, but it didn't work. Aaron walks into the kitchen where I'm finishing up the potato salad and says, I didn't know we were Jewish. I glance over at her with a confused look. After all, our heritage and genealogy are pretty straightforward. Mom was German English and dad was the same with some Scottish added in and maybe some Eastern European heritage that would explain Alex, Steve, dad's and daddy Bob's dark complexions. Glenn had a different father. Mom had married briefly before she married our father, and Guinea came from that marriage. The rest of us were from Dad. Well, not exactly. When Guy turned 18, my mother told him he had a different father. We had no idea why she did that. But it was her secret to reveal, and for some reason she did was something that Guy had to work through for many years, and he leaned on Glenn for that. None of us ever thought of Glenn as a half-sibling, and, and we didn't think of that way of Guy, either. The six of us were brothers and sisters. End of story. What are you talking about, Aaron? I ask as I finish up slicing boiled eggs. Well, Chris and I did that 23andMe test, and it came back saying that I'm 22% Ashkenazi Jewish. I put the knife down slowly and stand there for a minute, processing my sister's words. My first thought is that uh, Aaron has misread the genetic report from 23andMe. I too had taken the test about a year earlier because Tammy is adopted and we wanted to know her story. It was mostly a gesture of solidarity and love and I hadn't told any of my siblings about it. I did joke with some friends that I was the whitest person they knew, 50% British and Irish, 48% French and German, 2% Scandinavian. Interesting, I said to Aaron and picked up my knife. My world was beginning to shake. Later that night, when everyone was gone, I could not stop crying. Glenn and Tammy kept trying to comfort me and talk through what this meant, but I was inconsolable. This means that either Aaron or I am not a Lindy. 
I just couldn't tell her earlier. I just, I don't know how I could ever tell her, or I don't know, maybe it's me. Do you think it's me? Glenn thought no, but I could tell that Tammy thought maybe. The next day I called my brother Alec and asked him to take the ancestry test. Alec often spends winter months with Tammy and me in Arizona, and he has become someone I rely on and trust, and I felt safe asking him and telling him what had happened. Tammy and I were parked under a big oak tree in a small country cemetery. We had come to read graves because, ironically, we had learned that Tammy's great-great-grandfather was buried somewhere near the town I had grown up in. We hopped back into the jeep to escape the drops that had begun to fall from the sky, and I thought I would bite the bullet and call my brother while we waited for the rain to stop. Alec reminds me a lot of our mother. He shares many of Mom's qualities, intelligence, creativity, ingenuity, and bravery. Like Mom, Alec has been a college professor. He's started many businesses. And like Mom, he is very pragmatic. Wow, he responded. That's a lot. Sure, I can take the test. You know, Eric did one of those ancestry tests, and he's Jewish too. I think he said 11%. The moment the words left Alec's mouth, we both realized what that meant. If Alec's son was also Jewish, then I was the outlier. There was a pause on the other end of the phone, and then, I'm sorry, Jen. From that day on, nothing felt the same, mostly for me, but also for my siblings. We talked through the fact that Daddy Bob, our grandfather, was 100% Ashkenazi Jewish. And we speculated about why he had kept that a secret. And I was asking the question, who is my father? Since they are older, I grilled the bigs for more information, but none of them had a clue. I imagined mom had an affair with one of her professors, maybe someone from her ski days or the photographer who took pictures of her at the Grand Canyon. who my father is. I know because my mother chose to tell my brother Guy his name in 1979. And then when Guy took the 23andMe test a couple of weeks later, he and I came up as full siblings. I had even more questions. Did my mother know? Maybe. Did my mother choose to tell Guy to leave a trail for me someday, possibly? Did my mother love this man with whom she had two children? I will never know. Later I learned that my biological father lived long past my parents in Didi. The date of his death was June 12, 2016. Exactly 
three years to the day that I learned about him in a rainy country cemetery in Wisconsin. I've also learned that he was born 13 miles away from St. Anthony, Idaho, the town with the big barn and the happy family. <laughs> Maybe I'm related to them. Tragically, later that summer, my sister-in-law, Darlene, died unexpectedly. I flew to Salt Lake City to attend her memorial, and it was very emotional to be back in Salt Lake where it all began. When I was driving back to the airport in my rental car, I gave myself enough time to complete a journey that I very much needed to complete. I call my sister, Glenn, and ask her to do this with me. She says, of course, honey. First, I drive to the house where I was conceived but never lived. Glenn remembers it well, but I do not. They lived right behind our house, she tells me. Our backyards were the same yard. They were mom and dad's best friends, and the bigs played with their kids. I avoid the overwhelming information that I have other siblings. I drive by Glenn's old school and text her the picture. Next, I drive to the house that our parents built, just a walk through the woods to our grandparents' house. I imagine the possibility that my grandparents had discovered the affair and made my mother promise to end it if they helped build this house near them. I think about my mother at the bus station and how she almost left. Maybe he was with her. Maybe she was trying to escape him. Next, I drive to the home we moved to when mom started graduate school at the University of Utah. It is the house I remember best in the avenues where I first started elementary school. Glenn and I are chatting on the phone and sharing memories of the neighborhood. I remind her that I used to drink water out of the gutter and climb the tall pine tree that is now gone. It's amazing any of us survived our childhood, I joke. She recalls tossing her saddle shoes in the street and then driving over them to soften them up. I watch a woman with a young child come out of the house. Impulsively, I step out of the car. Hello. I used to live here when I was your daughter's age. She smiles. Next, I drive three blocks to find a house that I have never seen. It is where my biological father lived, and I have discovered the address by reading his obituary and then Googling him. His wife still lives there. I park and look at the house for a long time. Did he move there to be closer to my mom? Or is it a random coincidence that he lived within walking distance of my school? Did mom's decision to move us to Wisconsin have anything to do with him? Had I ever met him? Glenn gently tells me to drive away. You may never know, Jenny.
Just let it go. I realize that I am not the first or last person to have their world upended by genetic testing. But what I have learned is that I am more than spittle in a plastic tube. I've also learned that relationships are fragile and that as much as I believe that my mother's secret was her right to keep, I feel hurt by that choice. And in all of the painful discoveries I made in 2019, I learned what it means to call someone father. Bob Lindy is my father and I loved him. I carried a coin in my pocket for 15 years to remind me of that. Dee Dee Carver is my father. He taught me how to build a fire, change a tire, bake bread and laugh, and I loved him. I will not name my biological father, and I cannot say that I loved him, but he too is my father. Maybe I carry a part of him that is completely invisible to me. A gesture or the way that I smile. These things don't really matter. Yet sometimes they matter a lot. I'm sad that I never met him. More valuable to me than thinking about whose daughter I am is that this experience has given me a reason to think about how much I love being Glenn, Stephen, Alec, Aaron, and Guy's baby sister. I am connected to these amazing people by memories, a hodgepodge of genes, a group text where we share recipes, advice about plants, and photos of our dogs and grandchildren and our capacity to love one another unconditionally. Nothing can ever take that away from me. Not even the summer of 2019.